grandma and the former right Reverend Emmanuel Hezekiah Peace went to church this morning. Grandma gets up for the 3,375th time. That's 65 years of church, y'all, minus a few days of sickness, snow days, plus a few Christmas and Easter programs added in. Grandma comes in once again to add to the quarter of a million she has given in tithes and offerings over the last 65 years on an average income and to possibly put her robe on for the 2500th time to sing in a choir. And it would have been more if that young people's gospel choir didn't take more Sundays. And in a parallel motion, maybe not in the same church, maybe someplace else, the right Reverend Emmanuel Hezekiah Peace goes to church for the 3,900th time. This time, though, not to preach or pray or lead God's people, especially after years of taking money, taking other folks' wives, and living fat on the church's ties. With unsure tears. The same tears that he manufactured to deceive people, he goes into church. And they both begin to pray. A missionary to Darfur and, and a child pornographer went to church last week. The missionary was fresh from building homes and and digging wells and smuggling hungry children to safety and to food. The child pornographer was fresh from a night of downloading pics of underage children. Driven by a guilt he has never experienced, he goes to church. They both begin to pray. Jesus says this in the scripture to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers and evildoers, adulterers. And even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The idol of religion turns things upside down. It makes things unpredictable. Because according to Jesus' parable, his illustrating story, grandma's time may mean 65 years of good behavior and action may be less received by God than the right reverence, outwardly distrustful prayer of repentance. That the prayer of a missionary to Darfur may 
pale in comparison to that of a night before guilt-ridden sex offender. That an idol of religion, it can trick the eyes. It can keep the heart and soul in the dark. But what we also see from this parable, though, is that the practice in and of itself is not a problem. Both tax collector and Pharisee are going to church. They're both going to prayer meeting. They're both going to a congregational gathering. They're both going to an instituted thing. So the idol is not about having religious institutions or structure or commitment or practice of prayers or even rituals. No, religion becomes an idol... When those things are used to put on a moral talent show, to put on a performance, to put on a competition. It's all about performance. It's all about doing the thing. Look at the Pharisee here in our story. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. I mean, look at the Pharisee. He goes to church and he he stands up. He proclaims in a way to say, look at me, my turn, center stage. It's a performance of righteousness, a, a soliloquy of goodness. But not in Shakespearean style, but but a soliloquy of what I would describe as self-spearean style and eloquence. He began to pray, the Bible says, about himself. You see, the idol of religion is, is all about being seen and accepted as the one who has it right. The one who does it right. It is about showing off. For those of you who don't watch Martin, you won't get this. But Martin's one of my favorite shows. And it's amazing how the so-called, I don't like to use the word, secular mediums get church folk right. They get religious righter than we do. But there's a scene where, where, you know, Martin's mom is losing all her money to the right Reverend Lonnie Love. And so he goes to church, and he gets to church, and it's like a dance competition. Who can catch the Holy Ghost the best? And so his mom goes, I can't do it, y'all. She does flips, she does break dance moves, and it's a show. It's a performance. But the sitcom has highlighted something that's not so funny. Some of you here have discovered maybe in a revealed family secret or in the confines of the home and everybody starts to relax and the real them comes out or in a moment of moral failure that grandma and granddaddy and even your mom or your dad or so-called Christian friends have been in show business all along and called it Christianity. And you've come to hate it. 
You've come to hate Christianity. You've come to hate what church looked like where you discovered, hey, this is all show business. You know, and, and, and you've run from that. And some of you have been hurt by the lack of authenticity or have been crushed into believing that maybe God does not exist. Because if God existed, he wouldn't play it out like this stuff. And so stuff like going to church or tithing or or membership or singing hymns and, and sacraments and all that stuff now is offensive to you. But be careful. Because now in sort of our own kind of way, you and I are doomed to repeat the same things they did. Just in kind of a millennial Gen X kind of way. Kind of this postmodern way. Because now we're just following the new rules of being a good Christian. Or good moralist. Or really good religion. You know, do mercy real good. Do justice real good. Be cool and big world about it. Be multi-ethnic and multi-racial and brag about your church. Don't be anything like your parents. Here's the scary thing. We too are and can be drawn to the lights of being good, of looking good and better and even feeling good. Like like, like the shining moral star of the new millennial Christianity. But this glorious sitcom of Christianity isn't just about performance. As we can see from the text, it is also about competition. It's about comparison. You see, the idol of religion puts us all on the survivor survivor island of religion. And it actually lives, it actually breeds by pointing out the weaknesses of others and the strengths of yourself and your actions and your behaviors. Now, look what happens here. I mean, the very audacity of the Pharisee. I am not like other men. I'm not a robber. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not an adulterer. Now now here's where it gets real audacious. Imagine this guy sitting in church. They sitting in church. Obviously other people have seen him. They go up to the temple to pray and he actually says, I'm not like that guy over there. You see that one over there? The one everybody can look at and tell is a sinner? The one everybody can look at and tell that I'm better than? I am not like him. I'm holy. I'm righteous. I'm on the, I'm above him on the spiritual chain. Religion becomes a comparison, a competition. I am the man. I am right because I am righter than or not as bad as them. Our religion is an idol when our faith is subsidized or strengthened by not being like, you know, being better, not being like the other churches or the other Christians that are so lost. Or the suburban churches, or the lack of mercy or justice churches, or the lack of churches who their service is so boring. Look at us, we got a band, we got church going on here for real. See, I can point out all day what we can clearly see as an idol of religion, but we got it going on right up in here. Well, I got it going on, I'm guilty. You know, I think to myself, 
We're better than Mama Church. We got it better than Uptown. Nope. Uptown, they, they kind of lost. They kind of back in another generation. They, they slow. They're boring. They don't care about mercy. They uptown, but they drive back to the suburbs. We better. And you know it's worse with the sister church because sisters compete. Mark Upton coming there talking about, well, yeah, we finally broke the 200 barrier. Yeah, but y'all ain't really doing no ministry. I will actually highlight things in our meetings that make our church look better. Yeah, man. That's nice. I'm glad your church is breaking 200. Anybody different from anybody else? Huh? Don't look like Revelation, brother. In the end, everybody's going to be there. What, what's your church doing? Y'all still just doing the guitar in the Congress? That ain't no church. Y'all got that sterilized, clean nursery and sanctuary at the Y. Jesus got dirty like us. If Jesus had to pick a, if Jesus had to pick a place to preach, it would be at the neighborhood theater, right? He wouldn't be at the Y or an uptown and then nice clean building down there with all them folk. He don't want to be with them folk, right? I'll do it to make our church look better. Okay, okay, let, let me level. To make me feel better about what I am doing and who I am. Some of us even like having others who are not as good as us around. Be careful who your friends are. They like having you around because it just makes worship and our faith so much richer. Oh, God, I can worship you so much stronger if someone is more sinful than I am and I can feel better about myself. Maybe that's why some of you really like doing mercy ministry or being part of an eclectic church because you can find so many other people who need so much more help than you and boy, it makes God and your worship so much better. I've heard. I've heard some of us in our conversations are driven and how they're driven about how bad others are in raising their kids. How bad people are with their time management and their money and other things. How critical we are about folks, how they do their family. And and it's not because you want to help. It's because you want to help yourself to a helping of their moral weaknesses. My wife has gotten hip to my game of Madden. You want to come play Madden with me? I'll let you know. I'm not that good at it. I'm not that good. I maybe play once a year. So that I can beat you 100 to 0. Oh, you're not that good? Sure, I don't play either. Come on, let's play. Religion is like oftentimes inviting people to a Madden game in which you can rack up 100 moral points against theirs. But why? 
Why perform? Why compete? Why do this religious thing? Why have the breakdance contest in church? Why play Madden with God's religion? Why try to show, hey, I'm good, I'm pretty good? Why be better than others? Why? Because rejection is part of the human experience. And you don't believe God could love you or them otherwise. You have to get the blue ribbon. You have to make the honor roll, moral honor roll. You have to be first chair. You have to be what daddy wants instead of daddy wanting what you are. For some of us, it's about the parent thing of don't embarrass me. Please win. Be good. Be someone or something else, you failure. And we have learned that faking and performing and acting and competing, even in religious ways, it works. We have friends and acceptance. I wouldn't call it love of our parents and world because we have performed well. We have beat back everyone else. We are on top. We are worth taking note of. We are worth keeping around. And what does this tell us? That deep down we live by and know a real truth. You believe you are not worth keeping around. That our real selves are really not worth something. No one would really love us if our weaknesses were known, if our real fears and likes and dislikes were made known, if there's a failure in our religious practice. And so it is better sometimes for the survival of our souls to fight to be loved than sit back and trust that God or others will somehow rescue and love us. Yeah. It is better to feel like we are worth loving and worth something than to live in the reality of being less than what people will like and what God may want. Remember Cypher on the Matrix? Right? I know the stake ain't real. But boy, it makes me feel so good. I know I'm really not as good as I come off, but boy, it feels so good to think that God loves me because I've done right. It makes me feel so good that I might fit in because I'm better than this person. It's not reality, but it feels so good. And I am not going to risk being rejected. And religion, church stuff, Campus ministries is a great game. This stuff up in here, y'all? Mm-hmm. It's a great way to prove yourself to God and others and yourself even to you that you're okay. And speaking of God, yeah, let's talk about him for a minute. If the whole God thing is about our performance and competition in it, then our faith takes on a different turn now and characters God as needy. God is the needy one. His biblical call and mandate as is, is weak. As a matter of fact, the idol of religion can easily become the intensive care unit for God. That our righteousness is his life support. Let's look at the Pharisee again. He says, look at me. I, 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 verse 12, I fast 
twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now bring you back to verse 11. The Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. Now I'm going to let you know what's going on here because that word about can also mean in. I mean to. I mean the prayer is about him. The tithe, the fastings, the Pharisees' loud prayer are praise and validity to God. And he's being sincere. Listen to this now. He believes God has given him the good life he has. But the Bible says he prayed about himself. Which means he didn't do it for the glory of God, but for the sake of God. That even though he, 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 the second person of the Godhead, Jesus said it, the little idol of religion calls people to believe and live as though when you see me and how I do it, then you see a living God. God lives and is valid primarily because of me and how well I do it. The outer religion says, yes, I believe in God. He is alive, but only as alive as I make him. If my life stops giving him validity, if my life stops bringing positive energy, God's heart pacer will fail. If I don't give my blood and sweat and tears, my very effort, God will stop having life. If I don't stop doing this or that, God will hemorrhage. God will become an invalid, if you will, if I'm not the face and work of God to myself and to this world. Now, okay, this may sound strange, but considering how we've talked about performing for God's acceptance, we love God. And what we believe he has done for us. How we've benefited from Christianity. The kudos of community. Man, we love some community up in here. You hear me? We love some small group. We love, some of us love to be able, I love being up here. It's bad, yeah. I gotta check my heart. Some of us just like getting dressed up and having a place to go on Sunday. We love what God has done so much for us in a twisted way. We will do what it takes to keep him around and doing what we want. To keep him alive. To keep it alive. To keep the things that are feeding our own heart in the way we want to. We, our behavior can keep him alive and make him alive. So we want to keep this good thing going. We want to keep this culture of God alive and well. So we will work hard and well and strive and behave right. And make new and stronger church rules and performances. So that God can stay alive in the way we want him to be. Now, like a good ICU, intensive care unit, we live as though our unrighteousness just might destroy God. Might make him sick. Now, look, look, look how he distanced himself from unrighteous. I am not like evildoers. I'm not like the robbers. I'm not like the, 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 the adulterers. Even this tax collector, I am not like him. In other words, I am not like those that kill you or dishonor you, God, that make you stop being who you are, who make God and this religion sick, who can kill it. You see, the idol of religion can easily be God's personal center of disease control. The idol of religion puts God in a bubble. It puts guards around him. 
to stop the unrighteous and the evil acting from being around him. It actually insulates our problems and our issues from him so that our faith and our church and our religion and our God will not die from our sin and sinful people and mistakes being exposed to him. Religion becomes a a twisted means by which God, uh, holiness is guarded and protected but can keep people from really knowing and feeling him. We know if we don't guard God, good, southern, conservative, dressed in Christianity might be dead. We know that if we don't guard God with our good behavior and our performance, just maybe greedy, capitalistic, allowing Christianity might die. If we don't guard God, oh no, mercy ministry might get marginalized. God might weaken and fade if he gets too close to the conservatives or to the liberals or those black people or those non-seminary going pastors or the ones who lack good family values or my personal struggles. Maybe I can't let God get too close to my sexual identity issues or my struggle and not wanting to be the good little submissive wife I'm pretending to be. Maybe I can keep him away from my not wanting to go to church today. Let me put on my protective suit. Let me put on my disease control, moral, behavioral, environmental protection suit. Let me put on my show so that God won't be offended and die from who I am. I took a vow like you members to promote the peace and purity of the church. But you and I did not take a vow to insulate our sins and issues and people and problems from God. Lest he die or get scared or get overwhelmed or get a communicable disease and die. That somehow he doesn't want anything to do with troubled people. Religion says God may not want, has to want anything to do with people's troubles. Let, let me take it further. God just might not be able to handle how bad you are. He, he can't take your unrighteousness. He can only take your outward religion. He cannot and will not stand for a personal touching relationship. He needs you to put on good behavior. He needs you to put on rules. He needs you to put on regulations. Or else you can't have him and he can't have you. And when I see, you know, it makes me think, when you see guys in, in these disease protection suits and, and guarding the room from ordinary people without holy clearance, it makes me think, I've always thought this, even though I've been in the church all my life. I see the reverends sitting up the front with their suits. I see the pomp. See all that stuff. You know, I think, what they covering up? What's really going on? Is there a conspiracy? Ain't nobody that good. If you're that good, something going on. There's a disease. There's an alien. There's something going on. Y'all are acting too good. It's too, it's too behavior driven. It's too, too many no's, too many rules, too many regulations, too many things from really knowing the God that I've come to worship. I gotta worship your rules and regulations first. Something is wrong. There is a conspiracy going on. The idol of religion 
is a cover-up for the God conspiracy. There is a conspiracy going on. And here's the conspiracy. That That God is calling sinners to himself. Look at the prayer of the tax collector here. Tax collector stood at a distance, verse 13. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. This tax collector and his prayer, he uncovers the conspiracy that God calls sinners. That guess what? You and I, regardless of how good our behavior are, we are sinners. And God hears and deals with people who can't be good enough or fast enough or first enough or moral enough or religious enough. This man blows the conspiracy wide open. Even for this Pharisee, he reveals the truth. We are sinners. We need help. We are at his mercy. We are undeserving and we can't in and of ourselves do anything about it. You are not God. You cannot forgive yourself. You cannot heal yourself. You cannot do enough good behavior to be accepted. And get this, the tax collector is actually in the right relationship. He's not trying to be God's son, good son, or God's helper, but he sees he needs God's son and God's help. And then Jesus says something about the prayer that blows the roof off the synagogue and what continues even today to take the ice out of the frozen chosen, the up out of the upright, and the right out of self-righteousness. He actually kills human religion for all times in verse 14. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. The sinner was justified? Not the religious acting guy? The sinner was accepted as righteous before God? What is Jesus saying? This doesn't make sense. Why isn't grandma's prayer accepted and this other, this, this evil pastor's is? Why is it that that even the worst sinners in our societies, prayers can be accepted, but even good church-going people aren't justified as much as someone who's done wrong all their lives and come in and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying true religion is the work of a loving God in which he sees and saves sinners who can't dare to look up to heaven and help themselves. That in a person's inability to make themselves better, or good enough, God does the work. God takes the risk. God acts on our behalf. Against any attempt idle religion can make. In order for God to be a savior of sinners, to justify people like you and me, to have a sit or stand as righteous before him in order for your expression of religion to be accepted, God actually did have to suffer for your mess-ups. 
He did suffer for your lack of orthodoxy because he wanted religious practices to be used to draw us morally diseased and confused people to himself. He died. Yes, he died from the contamination of being around people like you and me. He was humbled so that you and I could be accepted. He was humbled and put on a cross so that you can approach him and be the church and do church. And in that, express the truth that, that religion means, right and true religion means, that God has made a way for us to be loved and healed through Jesus. And here is that message of the conspiracy. What is the message of true religion? It isn't stay away bad behavior, people. It isn't stay away until you can get the rules right. It isn't stay away until you can put your sin, contamination, behavior, modification suit on. The message of true religion is come. Come, you sinners. Come, you are are rejectable if we find out the truth about you. Come, you his children. Come with your sin. Come with the, without the protection of show-off behavior. Come with the honesty of your sin and even call more of a broken world to him. Make things messy for him to have to clean up. Come! Sing the songs. Come, confess your sins. Come and hear the word preached. Come and take the sacraments. Come and pray. Come and hear the story. Come and love him. Come and be loved by him. Come and let Jesus suffer and die and even be called scandalous for loving and keeping around people like you and me. Come. To true Christianity and authentic biblical religion. It's part of a ministry in Charleston. And the guy who was the evangelist, I'm not going to get into how they did it, a little five-fold ministry deal. They had a pastor, a teacher, evangelist, a prophet. Okay, get it, teacher. The guy who was the evangelist, Jimmy. Jimmy looked good, y'all. Jimmy always was sharp. Suits pressed at the cleanest. Shirt starched. Nice shoes. Even had the man purse. Brother was going on. I mean, he looked good. Hair always cut. Brother must have got a haircut every week. Unlike some of us. And there was a lady who was going to the church and she had a son. He was... Mentally disabled, she wouldn't bring him. Wouldn't bring him to church. He couldn't walk. But that wasn't the worst of it. He would have outbreaks. He'd just start screaming in the middle of nothing. But even worse than that, he had this drooling problem. She didn't want to bring him around people because he, he couldn't close his mouth or something. He had a bad drooling problem. So Jimmy would go to the house and see her. And most people that would go there, they would be like, okay, you can talk to him, but you need to sit in this chair. You don't want to get too close. And it's interesting because apparently the boy was had accepted it. Can't touch nobody. I'm drooler. Just sit in the chair and talk to me. Jimmy was different. And I, when, I, when, I, when, when I think about what happened, I am, a, because he's such a good, you know, got it together brother. And, and, and Jimmy... 
Jimmy was like, I don't want the chair. I want the boy. He would take that boy in his arms and that boy would make loud noises. Almost looked like he going to break Jimmy's eardrum. Just loud noises. And he would drool all over Jimmy's good suit. I'm telling you, it, it, it would be wet, y'all. Well, he, he, he comes to church one day. Kind of have a circle around him, make sure don't get too close. Put him in the back. And Jimmy comes out. He's not always there every Sunday. Jimmy this Sunday's preaching. So Jimmy comes out, and this boy who rarely said any words and could not walk begins to yell Jimmy's name, Jimmy! Jimmy! And out of that wheelchair stood up and began to walk to the front. Limping. Jimmy! Jimmy! Halfway down the aisle, Jimmy goes to meet him. God calls us. Those of us whose practice is not perfect. Whose drool of failure we are afraid may make God not want us. So we give God a chair. We want to protect ourselves from him or protect him from us. But God has let our sin drool on Jesus. So that by the experience of knowing God has come to us and touched us, that we in a miracle of grace, that we can actually walk in new life, that we can get up out of our sin and our wheelchairs and new behavior even. Yes, a new religion. Yes, a new practice of faith. But only and only because you've known a God who let you drool on his cleanliness so that by his love you and I can experience and walk in the light of his grace. That's religion. That's true religion. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. That our exercise religion is, is driven by the gospel. That you came without sin and took on our sin. And Lord, for that, in our religion, we yell out, Jesus! In our religion, we get up and walk and we do change and we do try but only lord not to prove or keep our way self from you lord but thank you for drawing us to you to be drooled on again and again thank you lord for this grace pray this in jesus name amen